this is the education show unlocking opportunities in teaching and learning through collaboration proudly brought to you by zabuza.net and welcome to another edition of the education show we like to explore things and we like to explore different things and one of the things we're going to be uh, exploring today is the topic of cultural intelligence and uh, my special guest who is going to speak to that is uh, a gentleman by the name of Quinton Pretorius. Quinton is the director or a director at Cultural Intelligence Africa. Hello Quinton, welcome to the show. Uh, it's so good to be with you David, it's nice to be here. Fantastic, it sounds like you know, when, when, when I first sort of saw the, the meeting and, and the bits and pieces about setting this up, I was like, oh, cultural intelligence. That, that sounds like something that belongs to the government and is a little bit military. But it's not, is it? No, not, not, not at all. It's been around for 20 years. And it's a, fundamentally a research question that our partners in the U.S. have been asking for 20 years. And the question is, what makes individuals and organizations succeed in a multicultural globalized world and they've been asking that question for 20 years and the, and the answers have been really phenomenal in terms of what's come back which is enabling people and organizations now to have research-based strategies to leverage diversity in organizations and that's any kind of diversity whether it's gender race age or even just working from different countries all right. Now, this show is, is predominantly focused uh, around uh, the education, uh, education in our country. So we talk to teachers, parents, uh, learners, those kind of things. I'm guessing that something like cultural intelligence would fit in very nicely in this particular arena. Oh, absolutely. We've been doing work with a number of uh, educational institutions around the country around how cultural intelligence makes classrooms more inclusive and how teachers and staff are able to leverage the diversity in those different classrooms. Let's just go back and take a step back, if you don't mind, uh, sure. Quentin. Can you define cultural intelligence for me? How, how would we, we define it? I mean, I've, I've heard of IQ and then a little, a little while ago we heard of EQ and now suddenly yeah. there's CQ. So, so CQ picks up where EQ leaves off, and CQ is the ability to work in any multicultural situation that you find yourself in. And so, sure, EQ gives you uh, uh, an intelligence in terms of how to engage with people uh, on an emotional level, but our emotions are very much governed by our cultures that we are brought up with and understand. So, in one culture, responding in a particular way is acceptable versus another culture is not acceptable. So, if I think about in one culture, it's okay to be expressive and to express my emotions. And in another culture, it's not appropriate to express my emotions. And so when you have cultural intelligence, you know what is appropriately right for certain cultures and how they respond to certain ways. Or, for example, in a classroom, uh, we ask people to, to show respect. But in one culture, showing respect is looking you in the eyes and giving you a firm handshake. In another culture, it means looking to the ground and not giving you any eye contact and so when you have cultural intelligence you're able to pick up these cultural nuances and be able to respond appropriately to the different people you're leading or or teaching so there are four capabilities that we look at at cultural intelligence there's cq drive which is my motivation to engage in multicultural situations 
their CQ knowledge, which is my understanding how cultures are similar or different. CQ strategy is when I'm in a different when I'm in a different culture, uh, am I able to plan for those events? And when I'm in those engagements, am I able to pivot uh, when when people are not acting a culturally particularly to a particular cultural value that I'm aware of? And CQ action is when should I adapt and not adapt in particular situations? And so those are the four capabilities we're able to measure. And then there are 10 cultural values that we measure in people. So for example, individualism versus collectivism or uh, direct versus indirect or high power distance cultures versus low power distance cultures. And what we're able to do is then give people strategies uh, once they know their cultural values, how to work with different people because you know what your cultural values are and therefore you know how you're going to be triggered or respond in a particular way. And the four CQ capabilities, uh, we are able to then say, you, you scored really low in your drive, you have two or three activities you can do to get better at um, engaging in multicultural situations. Because I would imagine, you know, and, and particularly in our country, and, and I don't believe that our country is as bad as some people would like to make it out to be. But we do have very diverse cultures, cultures. and we have, you know, and, and, and this sort of includes, you know, the, the, the racial cultures, uh, language, yeah. those kind of things. Does it require learning cultural intelligence? Does it require a willingness for people to actually learn more and to become more in tune with other people's cultures because i can imagine you know you you would have to have if we go back to what you mentioned was uh your cq drive i believe it was the motivation yeah you know you've, you've got to kind of do it because us human beings are terribly terribly funny people i mean we crave connection we crave this finding our tribe working with our tribe but you know and yet we expect everybody to conform to our perspective of the world. And, and you used, yeah. you used uh, an example of people, you know, some, some people would look you in the eyes, others look, uh, look to the ground. One of the things that I've seen people getting very upset about cross-culturally is uh, the fact that they may not have taken the time out to learn the language or to at least get some basic understanding of the language of the other person or in terms of how they express themselves. Because certain cultures, in order to show that you, you, you're not hiding anything, are quite loud. So, so yeah, do, we, do we have to have a desire to learn? Because I think when, when South Africa went through the transformation, we all thought, wonderful, you know, there we go. Now we've got yeah. a democratic government. Everything is going to be fine. And culturally, we all went our own separate ways again. So I, I think there's a couple things in, in your statement. So one, under CQ Drive, there are three sub-dimensions that we measure. Intrinsic interest, extrinsic interest, and self-efficacy. And so I believe that most South Africans, and when we've done the assessments in South Africa, most South Africans score really high on their CQ Drive. So most South Africans understand the importance of why it's important that we need to get together. So that's sort of an intrinsic driver. But there's also an extrinsic driver that government is pushing for us to be more engaged and there's lots of social cohesion activities happening around us. But something interesting came out in 2017. The national, uh, there was a big survey that came out around race and reconciliation. And out of that research, something interesting came out is that South Africans don't have the self-efficacy 
to engage with different cultures. And so most South Africans are fearful to engage with other people because we don't feel we have the ability to engage with that. So that was one thing that was interesting that came out of that research, this idea of self-efficacy. And because we're afraid we don't engage and we're afraid to make mistakes. And so, and because when we make mistakes in this area, people tend to lose their jobs. People tend to uh, fear that the, the worst will happen. And so I find a lot of people are fearful and are not having the conversation. So that's the one thing that triggered me when you were speaking about that. The other thing that was interesting for me is that up until George Floyd's um, murder uh, a couple of months ago, racism was a moral issue. So it was easy for us to say, morally, I disagree with racism. But when we saw George Floyd's murder, it emphasized that racism is systemic and it's embedded in our systems that are there. And so in 1994, sure, we, we became a democratic country, but we never really looked at the systems that underpinned the system, if you want to call it that. And so it's now more than just a moral issue. It's about how do we address systematic racism in organizations and how do we begin to change the system? And the issue is, is people that look like me and you, oh, and let me talk about me. It's people that look like me, that have my complexion and my gender that benefited from the system in the past. I benefited from the system. I continue to benefit from the system today. And it's only when I start to dismantle the system that I benefit from that we begin to see the system change. And so if a woman were to walk into an organization, say we need gender parity in this organization and women need uh, equal pay, most people's eyes roll in their head and say, yeah, it's just a woman talking. But when a man walks into the room and says we need gender equality, people will take me more seriously because I benefit from the system. And so my message to a lot of people is whatever, if you benefit from a system, it is imperative that you dismantle the system that you benefit from. It makes the conversation far more inclusive than keeping all the white males out the room while the rest of the people try and fix the problem. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm rattling on. Sorry. Not at all. Not at all. And, and it, it certainly makes sense. I'm, I'm just thinking of this. And, and again, I go back to, you know, 1994 happened and we thought it was a magic bullet and everything was going get, to get sorted out. But I'm thinking in terms of, of education here as well. Because there's been massive disparity in, in, in the education systems and who got access to what education, et cetera, et cetera. But even that, with, with the best will in the world, our teachers are ending up with classrooms that are diverse. Um, yeah. And a lot of times they're battling with it. Students, you know, I, I was naive enough, I think, uh, right in the beginning to go, look, we might not be able to, to, to get rid of the remnants of apartheid in my lifetime, but certainly we're going to be able to do it in my kids' lifetime, you know, because they, they, they're growing up with multicultures, yeah. but it still doesn't happen. And it, it's still happening across the board. And I've come across that. And, and you touched on something earlier on, which, which to me is fundamental to this problem, is fear. Yeah. We, we do so many things out of fear. And, and it, that, that we go across the board because when you talk about the work that you guys do, it's, it's, it's not just, you know, it's, it's gender equality, it's diversity, sure. and, it's, and it's looking at people that, that you know, let's have a look at, at the history of, of you know, the, the LGBT community in our country. They've also been terribly downtrodden and nobody's ever really taken the time out to go, okay, let's, let's talk about this. 
is is talking yeah. about it a good place to start in, in terms well, of this disparity it, sure i mean talking is important because words have consequences and words create policies words create actions the talking is really important and it's one of the first steps but we we shouldn't stop at talking i think an important component of of talking is this, the power of of sharing stories and personal stories at that because when i begin to share my personal story and David, you share your personal story if we can came from totally different parts of the world but once we start to share our stories our empathy levels our, our empathy levels go up we begin to see each other as human beings I begin to understand that you want the same things that I want and I found that when we share our stories in organizations schools and communities uh, a sense of cohesion begins to happen and those fears begin to drop because I have suspicions when I don't know you I I have a whole bunch of assumptions and my biases begin to come through but when you begin to share your story all those preconceptions and biases begin to break because i begin to see you as a human being beyond my judgments and my fears and my suspicions that i have for you and then those that empathy begins to rise and trust begins to build and so talking about it is important but how we talk about it and the stories that are associated with that talking is important and then it's also if we take the lgbtq+ community as an example when we when when we talk about it it is important that straight people talk as well or heterosexual people talk about it as well and not just uh lgbtq plus because often what we think is that the people that that are on the other side of wherever i am at need to talk and so for example when we get into the race conversations what we often find is white people start to withdraw because they don't feel that they have a voice but their voice is important in the conversation and it becomes frustrating to people of color in our country when white people are not talking and white people are not talking because maybe yeah they are fearful maybe they they're not sure how to say it but what i found is that when i began to share my story and when i've engaged with people and 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 create this space where i can share who i am the conversation becomes far deeper than not and and this is this is the amazing thing and it it's something that that to me i'm very passionate about is in our country we have this amazing tradition of storytelling of of sharing stories um the spirit of ubuntu and of humanity and and this is i think where we ultimately are all needing to get to is where we can celebrate another's humanity and if i can relate a story of of my own i was i was um back in the day in the, in the bad old days i was in uh, the armed uh, forces i was in the army and uh, we did at that stage something called coin ups or counter insurgency so i spent a lot of my time in townships and that was a period that that you know we we could go and discuss that until the cows come home the interesting part of the story yeah. is in a in a in a different time afterwards um we were actually training tour guides and field guides and the one night we were sitting around uh, the campfire with a couple of the students and we were just generally talking and then suddenly the guy sort of literally sitting opposite me at the campfire started to talk a bit about his experiences and he was actually a member of of MKM Kontowesizwe at the same time that I was in the defense force and we were sitting there and and we were having this discussion around the fire and he said to me how ironic is it that if this had been 10 years ago or 15 years ago whatever the case may be you and I would have been enemies and we would have been enemies 
because we were on different sides of the, of, of the spectrum and we were being told different things. Yet now, yeah. here we sit around a campfire and we're able to relate these stories and talk about this. And suddenly, you know, that person sitting opposite you becomes a person, a human being. And when you make that kind of connection and you have that respect, uh, uh, you know, we, we talk often uh, in, in my line of work, we talk often about perspective taking where, you know, yeah. it's the old, the old story about walking a mile in another man's shoes. But when you actually take the time out to do that, yes, there may be certain traditions, et cetera, et cetera, that, that are different from what we're used to. But we're still humans. We still have a connection there. Is, is that where we're striving to go with you guys, Quentin? It's part of the way, but I, I think, so, so there's that one part that we need to see each other as humans and we need to take perspective because perspective taking is a really powerful tool in this work. But I think it's also about destruct, de, 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 I don't know what the word I'm looking for now, but is deconstructing the system so that when my daughter walks into an organization, she, she can be completely who she is, but the system needs to, to, to change. And, and so I'm far more interested in rooting out systemic racism, rooting out systemic sexism in organizations, because when the system is there, it, it makes it easier for me to show up as a white middle-class male and make me feel comfortable with, to, to push a particular kind of an agenda. So, yes, there's a human element of it, but there's also a system element of it where we need to start looking at how, 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 we, how we change the system. And that's far more difficult because it's enrooted in every single thing that we do. So I often share the story of if I were to go to a meeting today and I have to leave home, I often ask so – I'll, I'll, I'll make an example of any man listening to this uh, podcast today. How many of you, when you get dressed in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, am I dressed sexually appropriate today? Will somebody take sexual advantage of me today as a man when I look at myself in the mirror? I don't think very many men actually have thought about that at all. But I, I know almost guaranteed that every woman that's listening to this thinks about that every day she gets dressed and she thinks about the route she has to take to work. As a man, when you walk into a room and you're the minority as a man, you don't, you walk into the room and say, gosh, I wonder what women are going to think today. No. Why? Because the system has been built that me and you don't need to worry about the dress code that we have. Me and you don't have to worry about walking into the room and being a minority. But yet women have to worry about those things. Women think about when they walk into the room and they, the only woman in the room, what would a man say in this situation? How do I say? What do I say? And so when I talk about the system, it's that. That how do we begin to dismantle that? So when a woman walks into a room or somebody in a wheelchair uh, gets into a meeting, that, that the system allows them to be themselves. Uh, just like me and you don't have to think about our race or our gender every day because we're privileged in that space. And so that, for me, is the biggest challenge. Um, and I'm looking forward to finding interesting ways to begin to solve that. And it was an, an organization that um, I was doing some work with, and I shared the story of, Ahmed Katrada and Nelson Mandela arriving at Robben Island. And when they arrived there, uh, Ahmed Katrada was given long pants. Uh, Nelson Mandela and the black leadership were given short pants. At lunchtime, Ahmed Katrada realized he was getting slightly better lunch than his black comrades. And, and so he went to the, the leadership of the ANC in jail and said to them, he wants to reclassify himself as black so that he can get short pants and eat the same food 
as his colleague, uh, fellow prisoners. And Nelson Mandela and the leadership in the ANC in the prison said, uh, Ahmed Pizrada, we never, we never trade down. We always trade up. And so fight for our rights to get long pants. Fight for our rights to get the same food as you. And, and, that, and I shared that story. I thought that was a fantastic story until the young man put his hand up at the back of the room and said, your story is for old people. And I was like, oh gosh, where's this going to? And he said this in, in a lovely thick Afrikaans accent. He said, I don't want short pant, nor do I want long pant. I want a new pant. And I think as we talk about diversity and inclusion or diversity, equity and inclusion in the workplace or in schools or in communities, I think people are longing for a new approach to this conversation. There's this deep sense of diversity fatigue we're tired of having these conversations. And it's about coming up with something new that we can all celebrate. And I'm beginning to see remnants of this new kind of conversation that's coming up when I engage with young people in terms of this. And it might not be something that older folk generally like or feel comfortable with, but I think that there's some exciting stuff coming down the track. I would agree with you there, and I've always said, and I mentioned it briefly earlier on, I think it is the youth and the youngsters that are going to come up with the solutions to this. Because people like me, we, we, we've grown up with that system around us. And you know what? Yes, we can learn to, to, to sort of, you know, how to deal with these situations. But some of the stuff is so systemic. Just the other day, my uh, our 17-year-old went down to, to the gates to collect a package. And she came back and she said that the, the, the sort of delivery guy, the, the driver, was kind of being a little inappropriate. But, you know, she can understand why because she was wearing a dress which may have been a bit short. And maybe she should take care of that when, you, when she went out. And I was like, hell no. You know, you don't have to live in fear about that. You know, and, and, and we talk about this thing as well. And, and, and the differences between men and women. I mean, I could have gone down to the gate in a, in a sloppy pair of shorts and some flip-flops and thought none, nothing of it. She actually absolutely. has to think about what she needs to wear. And, and you're so absolutely right. We talk about people going to a meeting. You and I would go to a meeting. We think, okay, we've got a meeting tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. So we have to get up early and, you know, jump in the car, miss the traffic, and there we go. What we don't often take into account is the person that we're meeting might have to get up at 3 or 4 o'clock and then catch Absolutely. a bus and several taxis, and then we'll still sit around and go, yeah, you know what, uh, they just can't be on time, can they? And, and you, there's, there's just yeah. no empathy there. So... Um, Carry on. And that's why that perspective taking thing that you're speaking about is so important to begin to see the world through other people's eyes. But it's also for me and you to start speaking up. And so you were talking about uh, something that I remember. <coughs> Sorry, I've got a bit of a cough. But um, I, I remember sitting in a, in, a, in a fast food restaurant pot and overheard two men talking about a woman in a way that made me so angry. And I was sitting there and I was getting so angry, but I felt like I don't know these guys. I don't know anything. I can't get involved in that conversation. And that was about two years ago. And then I was at another business school and I was buying my coffee. And again, two men were having a conversation about a woman and they were talking really inappropriately. And I didn't say anything. And, 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 and that was a year ago. But I've made a commitment uh, probably just about six months ago, eight months ago, where I will no longer accept any man talking about a woman in any way, 
whether I know that man or not any longer. And it's when I begin to stand up in those places, when I don't know the person and they're speaking, and I need to pay the price for that, but I will not allow another man to talk about a woman in any way in my presence any longer. And, and, but it's, uh, we need more men to make those kind of conversations, those kind of commitments that people know that those kind of conversations are unacceptable when we're around. And this idea that it's locker room talk is nonsense. And so that is the one thing. For example, my family now know that racist comments or slurs or jokes are not acceptable when I'm in the room. I will not accept that anymore. And I think as individuals, when we start making those kind of decisions uh, in our staff rooms, in our classrooms, in our families, that when I'm around, those kind of things don't happen, we will then begin to see the system change. But as long as we feel that we're spectators to this or that we don't have personal agency to create change, that's when I think issues become problematic. And so I think if, if, if anybody listening to this, it's, it's the challenge that we need to stand up in those public forums when we hear things that are not supposed to be said and have the courage to say something. Because I think the more we do that, the more we begin to see the change that needs to happen. And not just pass on the baton to our kids and make it hard for them. We should make it easy for our children to be able to stand up for stuff. And I, I'm, I'm watching with so much excitement when my daughter and my son uh, have seen that we've created the environment for them to stand up for other people. It's been absolutely phenomenal. You know, in, in one sense, I'm going to say, you know, we, we may be preaching to the choir here, but your yeah. points are so, so valid. And it does. It takes incredible bravery to stand up and to say, hey, listen, this, this actually isn't okay. Your, your example yeah. of this, oh, but we men and it's locker room, uh, locker room talk. If those roles were reversed yeah. and, and, and you were a man and you were listening to two women talking in that way about another man, you would be absolutely horrified. You know, so, so what makes it okay? And the, 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 point, the next point I wanted to get to and I was going to talk to you about is, is where do we start? And, and you've given us a very good starting point now. But for teachers, uh, for educators, for people in, in the schools, what else can we do as individuals to, to help drive this change? So I, I believe change happens one person at a time, one meeting at a time, and in school situations, one classroom at a time. And so I'm, I'm busy talking to some teachers to say, create your classroom as to what the future of our country needs to look like or society needs to look like. And as a teacher, you have an incredible opportunity that, that when a child, when a student, a learner, walks into your classroom, that that classroom becomes an inclusive and equitable space where they don't have to worry about what they're going to say and how they're saying. So I'm, I'm advocating for teachers to create classrooms of inclusivity, diversity, and equity. And it's up to the teacher to create that environment. And there was a school in a township in KZN that, that completely impressed me. We were walking around the school and they were showing us how the school had been vandalized, but one classroom, hasn't been vandalized in 30 years. It still has the original window panes. And we were wondering why is that the case? And so when we walked into the classroom, I couldn't find the teacher because he was sitting amongst his students. And he had created this one classroom that students loved to go to. And students wanted to be in that classroom. And the rest of the community knew that that classroom, out of the whole school that was vandalized, that classroom wasn't touched. 
And it was because I think that teacher created a classroom where young people felt they could be themselves. And so every teacher listening to this podcast, how do we create change? It's one classroom at a time. That when a child and a student walks into your class, can they voice their opinions? Are you listening? Is there suspending? Is there real respect in that classroom? Can you create a safe container that those students walk in there? And if we create one classroom at a time, that begins to change society. I often say to you when I work in corporate spaces to say, you change your organization one meeting at a time. When you host a meeting, can you create that meeting in a way that people feel heard, that people feel that their perspective has been taken, that the environment has been created, that it doesn't matter who they are, their voice matters in those kind of spaces and that there's high levels of empathy. So it's one classroom at a time, one meeting at a time, and one student at a time. And that's when we begin to see change happening. But it means that me and you as individuals we need to be honest with ourselves and honest about our biases and our shortcomings and not try and hide away from them. And so I often say to people, um, I, I'm a recovering racist. I'm a recovering sexist. And I need to work on those things. I don't walk into a room and think I've got it all together. I don't. And when I call that behavior out to myself, it forces me then to say, okay, I, I can now start working on things. And also uh, surround yourself with people that are different to you. I often say to people, the biggest challenge around diversity, inclusion, and equity in organizations is that it's not personal. So at work, I'll hear people say, I love working here. The diversity is absolutely incredible. And then we leave our places of work, and we go to our homes in these homogenous bubbles where people look like us, think like us, believe like us. We have electric fences that shock anybody or anything that doesn't look like us or sound like us out. And so we live in homogenous bubbles, but we try and be diverse in our workspaces, and, and it doesn't work. It's that whole Stephen Covey's analogy, private victory before public victory. And so we need to live diversity privately first. And so the places we worship, the places that we have socials, do those places uh, have diversity in them? And because when I start doing it privately, it has a massive impact at back at work. So it's, it, it, I suppose the, the inconvenient truth is it starts with me and you. And we need to step towards the diversity in our private life first before we try and do it in our classrooms or our offices or, or, or in our workplaces. You're still there? Yes. The point you make, though, is, oh, is, sure. <laughs> is, is something, something that, that – and I do. I, I struggle with it a lot because I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's about each one of us taking responsibility for becoming more conscious and becoming a better human being. And – you're absolutely right. You know, home is, is where it starts. Would you say, for example, students, learners, you know, if, if, if you're in this wonderful classroom at, at school and you go home and there's things that are not cool, is that something that should be spoken about as well? I mean, uh, it's different for every family, right? Because each family has its own sort of structures and I'm not advocating for young people to go home and become rebellious because some homes, these homes are unsafe for young people to speak up and to share their opinions. And so I don't want to make it easy that, uh, that it's easy for young people to go home and share, do those things. But I think uh, if I remember the home I was brought up in and, and when I brought my first black friend home, I was always wondering what cup of coffee would they serve my black friend? Would it be the special cup that we had in our home under the sink for blacks only? Or would it be the normal cups in the cupboard? 
I'm grateful if you say that my family served the normal cups in the cupboard. But um, so I, I, the way I changed my family's approach to this was exposing them to my friends uh, in my home. And, and it was a wonderful experience to watch Buchle and Seth, who's an Indian guy, and Jerome Brainkids in my home and my family feeling really discomfort because these would be the first people of color that my family never employed or had power over and could have real conversations conversations with. So I'm not going to advocate for young people to come home and, and, and put their parents in their place because I think that could be unsafe for young in some circumstances. If your family structure is one where there's an openness to challenge one another, absolutely go for it. But I do worry that we live in, in, in such a different space that for young people to challenge their parents might put them in harm's way. But if young people want to, I think the biggest, the easiest way to challenge is through my actions and through my conversations. I had a conversation at, at school today with this person, dad, did you realize that this happens in this family? Oh no, I didn't. Maybe that's how I would do it rather than challenge my parents. And then obviously as, as, as parents and parents listening to this podcast, You've got a responsibility as well then to start looking at this because one of the things, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, Quinton, that frustrates the life out of me is that we've gone so long and, and we've gone from, from all of us wanting to pull together and change and learn and it just doesn't happen. We kind of, I don't know, we're fatigued or something at the moment, but this is not a journey that we can give up on. It's something no. we have to continue and continue to do all the time. I would like to think that I treat all people equally. And I'm sure a lot of us would like to think that. But I still have biases that come up in me. I still do. You know, and, and, I, and I still sometimes, you know, I catch myself going, oh, but, and then I'm like, whoa, think about this one, Batman. And, and yeah. that's, that's the way I think we need to go. But Quentin... Yeah. Before I let you go, because we, we're running out of time, and it's been absolutely fantastic sure. talking to you. If somebody is listening now and they want to find out a bit more about this, they want to find out about your uh, four CQs that you've got, how, how would people go about contacting you, whether it is from schools, whether it is from a corporate, and, and how would we go about building this uh, cultural intelligence? So first of all, I, I think what I want to say is that as individuals, we, we have to, um, so the, the, the biggest helps that I've had is to draw close to people that have been different to me. And so when that rate, when those different um, behaviors came out, these people like Buchle and Zama and, uh, and Tokoza were able to call those behaviors out and I was able to make adjustments. So surrounding yourself with people that are different to you is very important. But if, if people want to engage with me, uh, on a personal level, people are able to send me an email to Quinton, uh, q.pretorius at icloud.com, and they can get in touch with me and happy to chat to them about creating inclusive classrooms and some of the work that we do. But probably I, I'd like to end with a story, if that's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Stories so, are what it's all about. So um, it's a story about my nephew. Uh, I think it was about seven years, eight years ago. He was, he was 10 years old and he was diagnosed with um, terminal cancer at the beginning of, the, of that year. And my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were told by the doctors that there's no cure for your son. Uh, you need to make the most of your time with your son this year. 
And so my nephew had a growth in his lungs and, and in his hip, and so he was in crutches halfway through the year. And my sister-in-law shares the story that he was in the shower and he fell in the shower and was crying. So she ran in and she saw her son laying on the floor and he's crying and he said, Mom, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm really just tired. I just want to stop. Can we just give up? So my sister-in-law sits on the floor with him and she says to him, you can be angry. You can be upset. You've been confused. You can have all those emotions. But the one thing I'm not going to let you do is you're not going to give up. You're going to fight this thing. And when my sister-in-law shared that story with me, it, it made me think of many South Africans that feel like my nephew laying on the floor crying, saying, I'm tired. I just want to give up. I just want to leave. I, I don't want to have these conversations anymore. I'm, 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 I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. Uh, this country is not what I thought it would be. So let my sister-in-law's words sit with you today. That you can be disappointed. You can be angry. You can be sad. You can be frustrated. You can have all those emotions. But the one thing you may not do is you may not give up. We have uh, spent too much money. We are too far down the track to give up on what we started in this country in 1994. And so let my sister-in-law's words sit with you today. Do not give up. We need to continue to fight this thing. And we will, we will win in the end. But it takes courageous people to do small acts of kindness and courageous acts that will have a massive impact on society. What a story. Quentin, thank you so much. Can you give out that email address uh, one more time for me if somebody wants to get in contact with you? So it's q.pretorius at icloud.com. q.pretorius at icloud.com. Get hold of him there. Uh, you can also check out the website, which is culturalintelligenceafrica.com. It's culturalintelligenceafrica, all one word, dot com. Check it out there and uh, also a way to get in contact with the people. Quentin, it's been eye-opening. It's been refreshing. I, for one, am not going to give up. I believe so, so deeply and so firmly in this country and in our people. And you, you made some valid points. One of the things I believe as well is we should not hand over our power to the politicians to, to have these conversations. We, as the people of South Africa, need to have these conversations amongst ourselves. Awesome. Well, that's it. Wraps it up for this edition of The Education Show. Thank you, Quentin Pretorius. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. Uh, and hopefully we get to chat to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. And we've got some more good news to share. Awesome. There we go. That wraps it up, my special guest there. Quentin Pretorius, yeah. uh, to each and every one of you, Thank you so much for being along with us. Thank you for listening and do take care of yourselves. That was The Education Show. Simply learn. Join the conversation on zibuza.net. That's Z-I-B-U-Z-A dot net.